Psalm 28. I guess many of us tend to think of the book of Psalms as the hymn book of the Old Testament. It is. And yet it is far more than this. In fact, there are more Psalms that are categorised as laments than as praise and worship songs, although the book as a whole does end on a high with a block of hallelujah psalms. It seems to me that the very fact that there are these psalms that we might call complaint psalms is not, contrary to what we might initially think, a depressing and perhaps unspiritual read, but actually an encouragement. For just as the people of old were able and free to express their very real and inner feelings to God, so can we be. What's more, there is no indication that God ever criticised or condemned them for doing this, but rather welcomed their approaching him with their troubles. Now, Psalm 28 is classified as a lament, and if you study books on how to read the Psalms, you will discover that it contains most of the elements that scholars have identified in laments. However, in Psalm 28, these are a bit mixed up or overlapping, and most modern Bibles only divide the psalm into four sections. In the first section, verses 1 to 2, To you I call, O Lord my rock, do not turn a deaf ear to me, for if you remain silent, I shall be like those who have gone down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands towards your most holy place. Here David cries out to God for help, and the way he says it seems to imply that up until then he had felt that God had not been listening to him. That's so common problem we all face, unanswered prayer. But that clearly didn't stop him continuing his conversation with God. Just read on. There's a challenge here for us too. Don't give up. God always listens, although the answer may be delayed according to our timescale. There is also no indication of what kind of help David is requesting. This is almost always the case in other Psalms of Lament. The plea or complaint is rarely explicitly identified. This too is an encouragement for us. It doesn't matter whether it's illness or opposition, injustice to us as individuals or a national crisis. All of these and other difficulties can be brought to God. Then comes the second section, verses 3 to 5, especially verse 4. Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbours, but harbour malice in their hearts. Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their evil hands have done and bring back upon them what they deserve, since they show no regard for the works of the Lord and what his hands have done. He will tear them down and never again build them up. This is what scholars technically label the curse. This is the part of a lament psalm that often causes us the biggest problem. 
How can a man of God call down God's holy fire of judgment on his enemies? Was this therefore just an Old Testament thing that now in the time after Jesus, it no longer is valid for us? Surely we're to show compassion and mercy. Significantly, however, both Paul in Romans 12 and the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 both quote Deuteronomy 32:35, where God says, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. The message is clearly there in both Old and New Testaments. What I think we need to remember is that the psalmist is not seeking vengeance himself, but committing the issue into God's hands. The lesson is that although such people cause us real problems, it is God himself who will ultimately mete out justice, and we need to wait on him to do that. Although our prayers may not seem to be answered in the way or the time we want or expect, God knows what he is doing, and good will eventually come. The third section, verses 6 to 7. Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I'm helped. My heart leaps for joy, and I will give thanks to him in song. This is the turning point in the prayer, although there have been hints of it earlier on. It's a confident assertion that God has already heard David's prayer, in contrast to what he cried out in the first section. In verse 2, he said, hear my cry. But in verse 6, he declares, he has heard my cry. That perhaps raises the question of whether the psalm was all written at the same time or whether the second half was penned some time later. Did David's confidence emerge from spending time in God's presence in prayer or was it due to hearing a prophetic word or seeing God begin to act out on his behalf in answering his prayer? Now, we don't know, but verse 7 seems to indicate that trust in God was a big part of this. And remember, trust does not necessarily mean that we have yet experienced the outworking of God's answer, but that we believe that he will work things out in his own time. As Paul says in Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This perhaps should challenge us to spend more time in God's presence, even if we are struggling a bit. And so the psalm ends with the fourth section, verses 8 to 9. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. We might, however, legitimately group together the last two sections. They are a strong affirmation of David's hope and trust in God, and a confident prayer to bless his people. This reminds us that thanksgiving is an important and integral part of our praying. How often do we list our prayer requests, but then forget to check the list and thank and praise God for the answers? How often do we remember to pray for ourselves, but forget to intercede for others? Let's rather follow David's example in Psalm 28.